2: It's no surprise that many Americans are stressed. According to the American Psychological Association, feelings of uncertainty, frustration, fear, and anger are stemming from a global pandemic, a contentious presidential election, and for some, ongoing systemic racism. This is Disrupted, I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we talk about the state of our mental health. First, let's focus on the election. April Kelly Wessner is Dean of the School of Public Service at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania and professor of political science. She says both Democrats and Republicans are feeling equal amounts of stress right now, partly because it's causing tension with friends and family. I asked her to talk more about stress related to the election and how it compares to 2016.
1: We are seeing higher levels of stress than even in 2016. So the American Psychological Association does a survey every year called Stress in America. And it asks people what their stress triggers are. And in 2016, they noticed that there were a large number of people saying that the election was a significant source of stress in their lives. So 52% of respondents in 2016 reported that. And it's important to note that it is pretty evenly distributed among Democrats and Republicans. The numbers are even higher in 2020. The same survey um, conducted very recently shows that 68% of Americans are now reporting that the election is a significant source of stress in their lives.
2: You said that we're seeing it even higher in 2020, and many of us remember 2016 as being this very contentious election process. A lot of people went into this mode of, you know, I'm just ready for election day to happen so we can get through this. Why do you think that anxiety is higher for us in 2020 than what we saw in
1: 2016? I I think there are a couple of factors. Um, First of all, in 2016, one of the things that was going on is that Um, President Trump and Hillary Clinton had the two uh, lowest favorability ratings of any presidential candidates in presidential polling history. So for a lot of people, that election was a choice between the lesser of two evils. They really didn't feel that they had a good choice and that caused a lot of stress. Fast forward to 2020 and you're again seeing that perception that for a lot of people, these were not their top Candidates. These are not who they, you know, for Republicans. There's a lot of uh, more old-fashioned Republicans who doesn't who don't believe that Trump really represents the party well. You've seen a number of you know prominent Republicans come out and, and speak out against him. And on the same on the other side, um, you know, we had we had fairly weak support for Joe Biden compared to some of the other Democratic candidates. But the field was just so um, broad that that he ended up with the nomination. And so there's a lot of people that, again, feel as if they have no choice. And then you add to it, what those low numbers of what those low favorability numbers are reflecting. and there's a large perception among people that have unfavorable views of Trump that he is racist. And so you're seeing that in the polling data and I think that causes a significant source of stress, especially um, with you know such tension and race relations in the country today. And there's a great deal of concern that a Trump victory, would mean um, further empowerment of some of the hate groups in America. And so when we talk in political psychology, it doesn't matter if you agree with that or not, the the reality is that's the perception and it's people's perceptions of what's going to happen that trigger stress.
2: Let's talk then about the impact of that fear, of that perception, and of that stress. The research that you have done and that you've worked on and and seen in other spaces shows that there really is a physiological impact to this stress and this tension.
1: A lot of times when we look at research in political psychology, we find that, that perceptions of threat have real physiological um, reactions that people's heart rates go up that people experience high blood pressure. And so they experience real sy- physical symptoms um, from perception of, of threat, even when that threat is just to your worldviews, even, even when it's not a physical threat. But when we look at the research, um, there's a number of things that, that pop out to help us kind of sort out what's really going on. And one of them is, you know, a lot of people, a lot of a lot of counselors reported that, their clients were, were talking about politics more than ever before in their in their sessions. And so they said, is politics really a source of threat? And there's some research on this that for some people it is and, and for some people it's not. And so um, research by um, Masha Krupenkin and colleagues, for example, looked at what they called expressive reporting. And this is the idea that we, we have a party affiliation And it is very common for us to express, uh, uh, you know, partisan loyalty, to cheerlead our own party. And then in the flip side, to also express being upset if the other party wins. And that this is a form of of, of partisan cheerleading or reverse partisan cheerleading. They call it expressive reporting. So the idea is that, you know, a lot of people say they're going to move to Canada um, if Donald Trump wins, but very few people actually do. And so we see um, this expressive reporting among rank and file Democrats. But when they looked at people's behaviors and whether or not stress actually changed behaviors, they found something a little different. So when they looked at, um, what they did is they did a study of um, 1 million Bing users and they actually looked at their internet search history. And they found that for ranking file Democrats who were expressing that they had, you know, psychological trauma from the Trump victory, there wasn't any change in their internet behavior. But for Spanish speaking Latinos, there was a change in behavior. And what they saw was significant increases in searches for words like depression, anxiety, therapy, and an increase in searches for antidepressant medications. So this to them suggests that there's something real going on there, and if you want to take it even further, if we think people are really experiencing election stress, like real threat, as we think of, of you know in terms of group threat, then we would expect to see those physiological symptoms that you mentioned, and so we see some studies that point to that as well. Research um, by in, uh, coming out of Johns Hopkins found that after the 2016 presidential election. There was an increase in preterm births among US Latino women. And so there's some evidence that for groups that perceived that they were really under threat, right? So especially Spanish-speaking Latino groups who had heard a lot of rhetoric from Trump about you know building a border wall to calling calling people from Mexican, Mexico bad hombres, there was there is a real perception that uh, there there's a threat from a trump victory that increases hostility towards your group
2: and this idea of groups who may be at higher risk and the physiological effects of that the behavioral impact of that even something like searches raises this question about social media right? It's omnipresent. It seems difficult to escape it. People often talk about, you know, we can disagree about politics and still be friends. Do you think that social media is playing a role in not just the polarization, but the anxiety and stress around this election? And if so, what should we be doing differently?
1: I I think it's playing a huge role, And um, we see that again in the survey research. So um, the Pew Center asked people whether or not talking about politics on social media with people with whom they disagree made them feel that they had more in common when they were done or less in common when they were done. And 72% of people in 2020 said that after they have political conversations on social media, they feel that they have less in common with the people that they had those disagreements with. And so we would like to believe in this idea of this deliberative democracy, that people come together and they exchange ideas and they learn from one another. And there's some evidence that that happens in some settings, but not on social media. And so there's a lot of factors on social media that really work against that idea of exchanging ideas and learning from one another. Um, one of which is, is that, you know, people are, are somewhat, um, you know, anonymous or at least not face-to-face, you're maybe not as personally tied to the, to the people so you don't care if you, if you don't offend them. And then the other thing that I think is going on is that when somebody is disagreeing with you on social media, they're doing it in front of an audience of your friends and peers. And so the defensiveness level is very high because you don't want to look ignorant or stupid or that you were wrong in front of a large audience of your friends and peers. And so that context makes discourse on social media really difficult. And I think it's much more polarizing than it is a form of of building deliberative democracy.
2: You know, I'm thinking about this current moment. We both work as professors. We are both engaged with young people all the time. And right now, we're mostly doing that in a virtual setting. So, the concerns that we have that you just mentioned about the lack of face to face interaction, the reliance on social media, and then how that permeates how we interact with each other. So, talk to us about political tolerance then. And, you know, the question that comes to mind is: is political tolerance the same thing as political correctness? Or is there a distinction there? that plays out into these elections and the kinds of stressors that we see?
1: So political tolerance um, has a very distinct definition from social scientists, but you'll hear the word tolerance used in different contexts by the media and lay people in a very different way. And so for example, there was an article in The Economist a few years ago that talked about young people today being much more tolerant than ever before because they were more accepting of um, you know alternative lifestyles, they showed lower levels of prejudice towards you know historically discriminated against minority groups, and they concluded that they were tolerant. And that is a form of tolerance, but it's not what social scientists mean by political tolerance. And so, political tolerance is very specifically not about who you like, but about the the ability or willingness to extend democratic rights and freedoms to the people you don't like. And so the assumption is, is that we all dislike someone, whether it's you know, group on the left or group on the right, or whether you dislike racists, or whether you dislike, you know, some other group. We all dislike somebody. And so political tolerance is the measure of whether or not that group that you dislike um, has rights to protest in your community, to publish books in your public library, um, to teach, does a member of that group have the right to teach college? Those are kind of the three traditional measures of tolerance. And so it's more about how you treat people that you don't like. Um, and so when we're thinking about political tolerance versus political correctness, um, political correctness to me is more about language and the use of language um, and what we do or don't allow Um, Political tolerance is, is, is a little different in that it's about whether or not you allow or recognize that groups might have democratic rights, even if you really, really feel that they're a threat to America.
2: Let's think about as we move through this election to the days, weeks and months after the election. And, you know, the calls that we're seeing for civility, because one of the things that you said in the beginning is that there is anxiety and angst across the political spectrum. And that kind of anxiety does not go away with the conclusion of an election. And it seems that it will persist regardless of who the winner is of that election and and whenever we will know that. What would you say to people who are listening to this show and thinking, how do we prepare for life beyond the election? Or what are the things that we could do to commit to this kind of civility and tolerance um, of groups that we may or may not like, of of politicians that we may may or may not like, but moving toward this space where people can be?
1: So, you know, I make some recommendations to my students, but but a couple of things, you know, thinking about the outcome of the election, um, politics is a team sport and and people have, you know, just just like they have loyalties to their sports team, they have loyalties to their parties. And so whichever side loses, those uh, supporters are going to feel a greater sense of loss and anxiety immediately following the election. But when we look at the survey data from 2016 and 2020, and we see that both sides are experiencing stress, the the source that they're reporting is that the politics, um, the the contention, the polarization, our political system is causing tension with their family and friends and loved ones. And so that personal tension in your life about discussing politics with people you disagree with but want to maintain positive relations with uh, infects both sides of the political party. And so, you know, what I tell my students is first of all, please stop talking about politics on social media. There's, there's really evidence that it is much more polarizing than it is convincing anyone to change their mind. There are actually studies that show when people are, are presented with alternative points of view on social media, they actually become further entrenched in their own original viewpoint because of that counter arguing and defensiveness that occurs. And so there's just not a lot of productive political discourse on social media. And that doesn't mean you don't share articles, you don't share news, you don't share reports, you don't share studies. I'm talking about the, the kind of back and forth in the comments where people are just really having it out with each other. Um, that tends to polarize people more than it tends to make them aware of alternative viewpoints. And then just thinking about promoting tolerance and going forward, I, I think you know, our leaders are partially to blame. And we are seeing discourse at the highest levels that is really uncivil. And I think until we demand better from the people at the top, I don't think we're, we're going to see a lot of civility in our politics. April
2: Kelly Wessner is Dean of the School of Public Service at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania and professor of political science. Coming up.
3: In addition to having this viral pandemic, uh, we are also in what we have called a racism pandemic.
2: This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Today we're talking about stress and mental health around the election and the pandemic. Brian Smedley is Chief of Psychology in the Public Interest and Acting Chief Diversity Officer at the American Psychological Association he says we're actually dealing with dual pandemics a viral pandemic and a racial one this mental health tsunami is disproportionately affecting communities of color especially black communities he joins us now brian smedley welcome to disrupted
3: thank you so much for having me
2: you know this year has highlighted some long standing concerns about health And a lot of that has focused on disparities in health access, but also outcomes. But your work challenges to think about health more broadly. Why include mental health within that study?
3: Well, health and mental health are inextricably linked. uh, And many of the same factors that shape what uh, creates health, um, physical health, are the same factors that shape mental health as well. So it's important that we attend to social economic and environmental factors uh, that are implicated in both health and mental health
2: you've talked about this uh, what you call a mental health tsunami for black communities what is that concept and then how do you see it playing out right now
3: we are facing extraordinary times particularly for african-americans so in addition to having this viral pandemic uh, which is obviously disproportionately affecting communities of color, African-Americans and Latinx and Native folk in particular, uh, we are also in what we have called a racism pandemic. Now, of course, unlike a viral pandemic, uh, racism has been around for centuries. It is not something that has emerged only recently. Uh, but the two, these two forces coming together are increasing risk Uh, for many communities of color, and particularly for African-Americans. So in addition to the viral pandemic and all that's associated with it, such as fear of uh, being infected or fear of infecting your family, fear of losing your job, fear of uh, the economic consequences of this pandemic, we're also seeing an unprecedented uh, outpouring of overt expressions of racism, xenophobia and intolerance. We're seeing more and more on social media images of police and others harassing, uh, even killing African-Americans and others. Uh, These things taken together are increasing risk for stress and mental health challenges for many Americans, but particularly for communities of color, particularly for African-Americans. APA's own Stress in America survey finds historic for our survey, levels of stress related to racism and discrimination, particularly for African-Americans. So when we talk about a mental health tsunami, what we're simply saying is that the challenges that we're experiencing in terms of the political climate, the viral pandemic, uh, the economy, all of these things taken together uh, are presenting extraordinary challenges. And we as a nation have to recognize uh, that we have to prevent uh, the kinds of stress that can lead to Uh, broader mental health challenges, but we also have to urgently treat those who need help.
2: You said that this isn't new, that, you know, racism, anti-Black racism is not a novel concept in our country. And we've certainly seen these challenges and tensions across American history. But what I'm hearing from you is that there's something unique or more pronounced about what we're dealing with now that has led to those kinds of changes and increases that you track in your data. Talk to us about that, about why this moment or this sort of collection of moments we're experiencing is leading to these kinds of increased tensions.
3: Sure, Uh, one of the things that we know historically is that epidemics and pandemics uh, tend to heighten fear and anxiety and uncertainty. So along with that, we often see a a resurgence of overt expressions of hatred, fear, intolerance. We saw a lot of uh, xenophobic uh, hate speech and behavior directed toward Asian Americans uh, when the pandemic first hit. And that continues, unfortunately, uh, with irresponsible leaders blaming innocent Asian Americans for a virus that they had no control over. Uh, We also have, uh, of course, um, uh, an historical context where many Americans thought we had turned a corner when it comes to racial justice. When Barack Obama was elected in 2008, many were proclaiming that we had become a truly colorblind society, that racism was over. Well, of course, uh, many of us who knew better understood that that was simply not the case, that it takes a long time to correct the racist history of our country uh, and the many ways that racism is expressed in our society through cultural narratives, uh, everyday discrimination, and of course, uh, the kinds of discriminatory actions that we've seen um, against uh, African American citizens. So this unique moment in history, uh, when we're facing a viral pandemic, uh, plus the fact that uh, many thought we had turned a corner, uh, lead to this moment of huge disruption. We're in a national inflection point, point. and in the midst of this crisis, uh, there is in fact an opportunity for the nation to hold up a mirror to itself uh, and to determine if this is in fact the nation that we want to be. Uh, if we are truly e pluribus enum, out of many one, uh, then we need to come together and recognize that the division. Uh, that has been fomenting in our society is destructive for all of us, particularly in the context uh, of an epidemic and a pandemic. And that's because communities that are characterized by division uh, are going to fare poorly uh, in the wake of a viral pandemic than those characterized by higher levels of social cohesion uh, and and, uh, collective efficacy. That's simply the ability for communities to come together, uh, to trust each other, and to Uh, solve the the challenges that they face. We have not been able to do that in in the United States. And that's one of the reasons I believe why we face some of the highest infection and mortality rates around the world because of the high levels of social division in this country. So even as we're physically distancing for safety and to mitigate personal risk, we have to recognize that our communities have to come together uh, and find a level of social cohesion uh, so that we can collectively uh, combat this virus; uh, otherwise, uh, the virus will will remain with us for a long time to come.
2: I want to talk about the how the the how we get there, but also how we are seeing this heightened tension, this heightened anxiety affect health outcomes. So, can you talk about how that tension? then becomes an issue of total health and wellness or the the compromise of health and wellness for the kinds of communities that you mentioned. So how that xenophobia around the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, for example, is leading to negative health outcomes for Asian Americans or for black communities who are wading through the sort of heightened violence and that tension. So what are the health outcomes that we're seeing?
3: There is a large body of research showing that experiences of racism and discrimination are associated with physiological erosion to the body. Uh, There's been some fascinating research showing an association between experiences of racism and discrimination and changes to our genetic material, changes to our DNA among African-Americans. So literally these experiences are getting under the skin to cause physiological harm. There are many pathways and mechanisms through which experiences of racism and discrimination result in stress responses, traumatic responses. In some cases, people are experiencing symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, And these are the ways in which these kinds of experiences can get into the body, uh, causing damage to our our physical bodies uh, and to our mental health as well. This is why it's critically important that we begin to intervene uh, and provide the kinds of services that people need to help cope during these difficult times.
2: Let's talk about those services and, you know, what do we do? We know the problem. The problem is massive. As you have said before, it's not a new problem. We've seen some cities and localities declaring racism as a public health crisis. And, you know, I've argued in my own work that we're talking not about post-traumatic stress, but really about perpetual traumatic stress for many communities. Is this about individuals just accessing help and services, or is there need for uh, an overhaul of the infrastructure of how we think about mental health and wellness in the United States?
3: Yep, absolutely. Well, first, we've got to recognize that uh, for decades now, we have been defunding and systematically dismantling our public health and mental health systems. The infrastructure for mental health services, particularly uh, for uh, low and moderate income families, ha- has been deeply eroded. We've got to restore that and ensure uh, that there is community-based care that is available for everybody who needs it and culturally appropriate care. Uh, so that's one of the first things that we need to do is to begin to reinvest in those systems because we see the terrible consequences uh, of that weakening of that public health and mental health infrastructure. We also have to ensure uh, that that as a society, we're recognizing the very symptoms of the illness of racism that pervades throughout our society. We have to understand that irresponsible leaders uh, who foment division uh, and who encourage uh, expressions of intolerance and hatred are in fact causing harm to many, many Americans, not just Americans of color. We're all suffering deeply uh, because of the irresponsible rhetoric uh, of some leaders. Uh, and so it's important that we take steps quickly uh, to recognize the problem. This is the pathogen. The pathogen is racism. Uh, and until we understand how deeply uh, this scars our economy, uh, it scars our our Uh, our our population, and as Dr. Kamara-Jones puts it, uh, it in fact ultimately wastes uh, resources in society through the waste of human potential. Um, So having that level of understanding and understanding that not only do we need services and infrastructure, uh, but we also need to do a a course correction in our society, in our politics, uh, in our understanding of how we relate to each other, uh, and ultimately, coming to a recognition uh, that our fates are deeply intertwined. Uh, If we can't solve this problem for communities of color, we all will suffer.
2: You've talked about the importance of social cohesion. And in a pandemic where we are told to practice social distancing, often that comes at the expense of social connectedness. So how do we navigate that tension that we need to maintain a physical distance in order to keep ourselves safe and healthy to protect our families? And yet that social connection seems to be so important to helping people navigate the tension, the sort of repeated assaults on their wellness that you've mentioned.
3: Yeah, absolutely. There are groups that understand this and are finding ways uh, to promote a sense of social con- connection, even during these times of physical distancing. We have faith groups, uh, civic groups, others, mutual aid societies, recognizing that we can find ways to assist each other uh, and do it safely. Uh, and of course, technology helps as well. Many of us have been on on. Uh, uh, platforms uh, virtually interacting with each other uh, and that has led to fatigue in many cases but it's also true uh, that these platforms can be an important way to find social connection with families communities and others and many communities are finding ways to be physically present even as they're safely distancing from each other uh, in in shows of support Uh, so this is critically important and it doesn't take government to do this it just takes leadership uh, and a recognition um, that strong communities, cohesive communities, will fare better during the pandemic than those characterized by division.
2: Dr. Smedley, would you say that racism is a pre-existing health challenge or, or health condition in this country? And if so, what should that compel us to do differently?
3: Mm-hmm. Yes, we have to understand that racism is, in fact, a public health crisis. So like any other public health challenge, we've got to understand its roots. We've got to understand how it operates at many different levels. Racism is not simply an interpersonal phenomenon. I think people are beginning to understand this. Uh, More people in our our public conversations and in our discourse are referring to systemic racism. Well, racism is, in fact, a system uh, that unfairly advantages some and unfairly disadvantages others on the basis of what we look like. Uh, So we need to understand that racism is not simply uh, individuals harboring animus toward others. Uh, This is also uh, a problem um, that operates at structural levels. So when we think about our laws, customs, policies, and practices that support racism, such as residential segregation, uh, then we begin to understand how racism can persist even without individual animus. Uh, when we understand um, uh, racism operating at institutional levels, such as in um, law enforcement systems, in school systems, in healthcare systems, then we begin to understand again that this is not simply limited to individual animus, but is in fact deeply baked into our uh, systems and structures in this society.
2: You know, you have a very long and distinguished career working in this field in many different ways. So whether it was health policy and advocacy, working as a research director, working as a senior program officer, and now your current position at the APA. What has all of that taught you about health equity and how in this moment, uh, all of us, because I like the fact that you affirm that we do have power and we do have agency to make things better in a lasting way. What has that long, august career taught you that you could say to people today about how we move forward in a way that is stronger and promotes sustained health?
3: Well, first, thank you so much. I appreciate your, your compliment. I am but one of many, many individuals who uh, have found themselves uh, deeply engaged in this fight because this is the challenge of our of our lifetimes. As I mentioned earlier, our nation is in an inflection point in this moment. Uh, it's been said before that in in crisis there is opportunity. I'm very hopeful that we'll take advantage of this moment. Uh, One thing that I can say in my 25 plus years working in this field, uh, I've never seen a greater opportunity to disrupt the status quo uh, and ensure that we emerge from this pandemic uh, a much stronger nation, a much more egalitarian nation, one that lives up to its ideals uh, in terms of providing opportunity for all. Uh, The one thing that I've learned uh, throughout all this is, is just what you said, that communities themselves have the power. Every community, uh, has sources of strength and resiliency, no matter how much they've been denigrated, demeaned, and stigmatized uh, and this is particularly true for communities of color uh, that have long had uh, strong cultural traditions, uh, faith institutions, civic institutions uh, that provide the backbone of support for communities that otherwise have been historically under assault, literally under assault. when we think about uh, the experiences of African Americans and other people of, of, of of color in this country. There's a long history of domestic terrorism that we have never acknowledged. And again, that kind of domestic terrorism has deep health and mental health consequences. Uh, So it is up to us uh, to understand the power of communities to come together, to support each other, uh, and to demand uh, that voices of hate and intolerance uh, 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 no longer express themselves uh, and that we find space for those voices Uh, expressing a deep desire for the so-called beloved community.
2: I think we all need to remember, as you said, in crisis, there is opportunity and that then it's up to us to take full advantage of that. Dr. Brian Smedley is Chief of Psychology in the Public Interest and Acting Chief Diversity Officer at the American Psychological Association. Dr. Smedley, thank you for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Coming up, you know, we're social beings, and we, when we're at a place, at a point in life when we can't even touch or be in close proximity with people that we love and care about, I definitely think that impacts us more than we know.
2: I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This is Disrupted. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. The recent Stress in America study from the American Psychological Association reports that 67% of black adults say discrimination is a significant source of stress in their lives and high levels of stress lead to poor health outcomes. In some black communities, there's a stigma around seeking help for mental health issues and a distrust in the healthcare system. Kamisha Morris is a psychiatric clinician and coordinates the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council at the Institute of Living. She also runs support groups and mental health outreach to African-American communities here in Connecticut. Ask her what she's hearing from her clients about stress and the pandemic.
0: The isolation piece is really, really big. Um, you know, we're social beings and we, when we're at a place, at a point in life when we can't even touch and, or be in close proximity with people that we love and care about, I definitely think that impacts um, us more than we know. And then the uncertainty of it all, you know, just feeling unsettled, not knowing when it's going to be over. Um, at some point, um, I think it weighs heavy. And, and it doesn't matter who the person is, whether they are, you know, someone with a previous um, mental health diagnosis or just someone who is, you know, going on their daily lives. It's definitely, um, it's definitely something that, that has impacted everyone. I think that the notion
2: that it has affected everyone, whether people were already dealing with mental health challenges, or as you mentioned, this sort of new fear and uncertainty has heightened some of that. And when we look at data from the CDC, it says that 40% of Americans reported struggling with mental health or substance abuse since June. And yet Mm. the percentage, when we look at communities of color, seems to be even higher. What are you seeing in your practice and in your work surrounding that intersection of race and uncertainty in mental health? When COVID came
0: about, there was a disproportionate um, number in terms of African Americans diagnosed with COVID. So, so that's also concerning because now you're looking at, am, am, am I at risk? And what, why am I as a person of color at risk? So that definitely creates some anxiety. Also, I, I think there there's this unconscious piece. I definitely think, you know, even in my practice, I've seen clients. I had one particular client, like they've never been inpatient, never had certain episodes, and all of a sudden I see people's mental health deteriorating to the point of you know maybe needing hospitalization. That has never that has never happened before with some of my clients. So it's like they may not realize how things are impacting them but i believe that it is and then you see the racial unrest and the black lives um matter movement and and seeing that constantly where you know black individuals are being killed so here you you're you're getting all of this even through the media you're getting all of this this negativity you know you're you're dying of covid then you're dying from being you know um killed by police or whatever the case may be. And you're being inundated with all of this. And so I definitely can see where anxiety can be heightened. Depression can be heightened.
2: One of the challenges, it seems, from what you've just said is that there's no real respite for people to be able to get away from that trauma that they see on the news or the fears that they have about COVID-19, but also the economic anxiety. And one of the things that you did here in Connecticut was to create a monthly support group aimed at providing that respite or that safe space for Black communities. Why did you think that was important?
0: Well, I actually, um, for a long time, I I realized, and the research shows this too, that Black individuals access access treatment at a much lower rate um than their white counterparts. And so my concern was, okay, why is that? You know, and just just thinking about, you know, what I could do to give people a um to give black individuals a space where they could, you know, feel comfortable to talk about, you know, some of these things that they're going through, but also to provide some psychoeducation. So you know, to, to even around stigma. You know that it's not a moral weakness if you're experiencing anxiety or depression or have some other psychiatric diagnosis. Um, I definitely wanted to do some 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 psychoeducation around that, and even within um, certain cultures, you know, there may be certain beliefs about certain illnesses and so forth. So I thought it was definitely important to to um, to give some psychoeducation around. Um, mental illness but also create a safe space for individuals to or even brave space let's call it right brave space where they can become vulnerable and transparent but amongst their own uh, amongst people who may understand um, what they may be going through you know growing up and I hear that it's not only with black families or you know maybe other families of color but you know one thing you you grow up hearing is that you don't you know, whatever happens in the house stays in the house. You don't bring it out. You don't air your dirty laundry. And so I think that that has carried, um, with people. We don't, we don't go to other people to talk about, you know, our, our issues per se, you know, so you deal with it. And a lot of people of color, black people, I feel that they turn to their, um, their their place of faith, you know, um, whatever their religious um, community is, you know, their pastor, whoever, and and that's who they seek out. But you know, I think they can only um, do but so much. So, creating this space and helping them to get comfortable here in a support group, hopefully, they'll be more apt to reach out for services when they need it.
2: Kamisha, it's a challenge because, as you mentioned. There is that shame and that stigma, the stigma that needs to be dismantled or disrupted so that people understand that mental illness is not a moral failing. And yet, as you said, many communities of color lean into their faith or into their religious organizations in order to deal with these problems, you know. Is it okay to believe in a higher calling and have a therapist so that people don't see that as negating their faith, but actually stepping into that to say, if the resources are there, take advantage of them because they too deserve to be healthy and whole.
0: Absolutely. There's absolutely no reason why you couldn't you know, be very, very, very strong in your faith and still reach out for um, mental health services. People do it with other illnesses and see this is the issue is that if it's cancer, we'll run to see, you know, an oncologist, you know, or, you know, if there's other issues, you have high blood pressure, you have no problems with going to see your doctor. And for some reason, mental health has, gotten a, um, a bad rap, I guess, you know, that it's, it's the other, you know, it's not considered, you know, an illness, like every other illness that we may have, you know, the brain is an organ as well. And just like how you may have problems with your heart or your liver or other organs in your body, the brain, um, you know, can malfunction as well. And it doesn't have to be a long-term thing for some people. It may be for some others, it may just be an acute situation in your life and you just need to, um, lean into services. It's nothing wrong with that. And even if you're an absolutely quote unquote healthy individual, there's nothing wrong with seeking therapy as well, because guess what? You may deal with things, grief, loss, you know, um, transitions, even good transitions, you know, being promoted at a job, you may need someone to talk to about maybe stressors of that or, you know, the anxiety about the transition. So um, most definitely you can be connected to your faith and seek mental health services.
2: One of the things that we talk about often on Disrupted is the need for partnerships and collaborations across interest and across communities in order to really move things forward. And something that you've talked about that I really appreciate is this idea that instead of talking about cultural competency, we need to think about cultural humility, so that even if people can overcome the stigma and and seek the help that they not only need but deserve, that providers also need to be aware of the clients that they're dealing with, but also how these broader factors that you've discussed are playing into the things that are presented. Why do you think cultural humility is important for navigating these challenges?
0: It is so important. Um- because I think there's there's a lack of trust within, you know, the Black community and communities of color when it comes to just the medical system um, overall. You know, I could point to many different, you know, historical events that showed where, say, Black individuals were not treated um or or valued within our medical system. So I think there's a lack of trust. And even as we look to some research, recent research, we're seeing where specifically Black men are diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia and, and it may not be true. So it's very important that we take a look at culture and what's going on within someone's environment, getting to know that individual. Yes, you may even know a little bit about their culture, but just as you would with any client, you build that rapport and you get to know the individual and be curious. So when I say cultural humility, it's about being humble, right? That knowing that you could never be fully, fully competent in an area. And so you don't walk into a space into a room with that, um, with that type of thought process where you are the, um, the, the expert. Know the person that's sitting in front of you, know their life, life know what they're, they've been dealing with and what's co- what they may be experiencing culturally. One example, I've, I knew a, a, a professional black woman who had seen for a long time doing well, Um, end up having to go inpatient. And the treatment recommendation for her, she wasn't recommended or referred to a professional's program, which most professionals are referred to. And I couldn't understand why she wasn't. And she was also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. I had an issue with that because this person did not have borderline personality disorder. And I think that maybe whoever made that referral, they, it could be so unconscious for them. They don't even notice that, the, that what's going on for them internally, that it is showing up in the care that they provide. So I just think it's very important. Self awareness is very important in understanding that, you know, you may not be, you may, you won't know it all, you know, so just being curious and humble as you're working with people who, people in general, but definitely people who are different. Um, culturally than you are.
2: I appreciate that reminder that it's not just about access to care, but also about quality of care. And I think that can apply to so many different interactions that we have. Kamisha C. Morris is a psychiatric clinician and coordinator for the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council at the Institute of Living. Kamisha, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you again for having me.
2: Disrupted is produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Tolarski. We'd love to hear from you. Send feedback or show ideas to Disrupted at ctpublic.org. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for joining us.